I am uh, excited that we are still in this book of Colossians. This is one of my favorite letters in the New Testament, one of my favorite books by Paul. And uh, just in these compact four chapters of his letter, uh, there's just a lot that really is a part of, that applies so much to where we are today. And I think, um, I think as we look at some of those points today, you, um, you'll see what I'm talking about. But I, I know I've talked to a couple of you about this. When I was in, when I was in college, I um, got a scholarship to uh, play basketball at this real little NAIA school in St. Louis. And uh, I, I didn't really play a whole lot, but it was great to have school kind of quasi paid for and things of that nature. Um, one of the things that I remember is uh, in particular, every year uh, St. Louis would host this big national coaches clinic and they would bring in a big nationally known coach. One year it was Coach K, uh, Mike Krzyzewski from Duke. Uh, one year it was Bobby Knight from Indiana, uh, Bernie Bickerstaff back in the day when he was coaching the Seattle Supersonics. And so I got to be a part of the, um, what they would do is they, they bring all these coaches in and then those coaches would use a local college basketball team to kind of run a, a typical practice for all of these coaches. So my team was the one that was, we were kind of practice dummies. So we were practice dummies for the likes of Coach K and Bobby Knight and Bernie Bickerstaff. So I was really, I remember being really nervous, um, especially in front of Bobby Knight. You don't, you don't want to upset him. But, um, but each year, the thing that stood out as I was a part of this clinic each year is that these big name coaches talking about what they were doing with these incredible athletes on their teams, they communicated a very similar message. Um, this is this is what you do. This is basically why they were bringing all the coaches together. They were saying, this is what you do in order to have a healthy championship team. And what captured my attention each year was how simple their approach to the game was, even at the highest level that they were at. They described basic ways of practicing and training the core essentials of the game. It, it wasn't... Um, it wasn't so complex <clears throat> that it was impossible for even a guy like me who rarely played on an NAIA level to actually do some of the drills that Bernie Bickerstaff was having uh, the Seattle Supersonics doing. So my takeaway uh, was that we need to continually keep coming back to the basics. This isn't just something in sports. This is for us real life. What got those elite athletes to the highest level? What got them there is the same thing that keeps them at the highest level, and that is those basics. And so this passage that we're gonna look at this morning is one in which the great coach Paul brings us back to, um, and he, he emphasizes why basics are so important. He's already talked about some of these basics in this letter, and now he's gonna remind us of some, and he's going to tell us why these basics are important, um, because as we'll see, um, this team, this church in Colossae was starting to come off the rails. They were they were starting to forget some key things. And so um, I, uh, I'm going to jump into this uh, beginning in verse six of Colossians two. But before I do, um, can we just be still for a minute? 
and uh, just open our hearts up to God. Just right there where you are, take a deep breath and get in a comfortable position. Let your shoulders relax. And remember that everything in the Bible is all about Jesus. Yes, there will be some things that we can learn and apply to our lives, but what we're about to look at, it's really all about Jesus. And that's who we want to give our, our focus and attention to. Father, I thank you for these words that Paul wrote to a group of people that he had never met in Colossae. And I'm thankful that Paul also wrote words he had no idea. He was also writing to a group of people out here in California that he had never met. And so we, at this time, Father, we want to open our hearts up to you, not just to learn something new, but so that we can become more like the Jesus that Paul talks about. That we can become more like the Jesus who loves us beyond all that we could imagine. And that we would walk away from this time together, um, that we would scatter and that the world would know more about Jesus just by the way we lived our lives, by the way we love and forgive, by the way we give thanks in the midst of this crazy time. I pray this in the name of the one we are here to worship. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, let's jump in with verse uh, six. I'm going to read a couple of these verses, and then um, in these two verses, Colossians 2, 6, and 7, we're going to look at four characteristics of a, a healthy Christian, or uh, if we're going to stick with that basketball analogy I was using earlier, four characteristics of a team that's going to win, of Christians that are, are going to have success in this journey. Beginning in verse six, Paul says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. In other words, it was the basics that captured your heart, and it's going to be the basics that keep you living this life. And then he goes on to describe it after saying, continue to live your lives in him, rooted, built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And those four things, rooted, built up, strengthened, and overflowing with thankfulness, um, are kind of Paul's four characteristics of a healthy Christian. Um, and it, this should be kind of a natural overflow. These are the things that, that are done to us and in us because we have received Christ Jesus as Lord, because we acknowledged Jesus is all we need for salvation. And as we continue to acknowledge Jesus is who we need day in and day out, we find ourselves rooted, built up, strengthened, and overflowing with thankfulness. So just a real brief, let me kind of make sure we're all on the same page, understanding what each of these phrases means. We won't spend a whole lot of time on this, but I think it helps us to know a little bit this rooted in Christ, um, the, the tense of that verb is you have been rooted, you have been planted. This began at the time of your salvation. This began at the time that you said yes to Jesus. But the tense of this is it's a past event that has an ongoing act. So in other words, you were rooted in Christ and you are still rooted in Christ. Um, Christ is the source of your spiritual nourishment. 
of your spiritual growth, your spiritual fruit. That's what it's talking about with roots. The roots are what are necessary to, uh, to nourish the rest of the tree. And so you are rooted in Christ. You are rooted in the rich, healthy soil of Christ. From that, we are built up in Christ. So he's, at this point, he's not using a tree analogy. It's like a building. So he, it is one brick at a time, one stone at a time. It's a process of becoming more and more like Jesus. This too is an ongoing process. This is not like you were rooted in Christ and then all of a sudden you were one complete building. This is something that it takes some time. And sometimes it looks like if you've observed a building in the process of being built, you'll drive by some days and you'll notice significant difference. And then there's other days you drive by and you're not sure anything was done at all. And so um, this is characteristic of our life. This would also be true if we still stuck with the tree analogy. Um, an oak tree might grow for hundreds of years. Um, in fact, it won't reach maturity oftentimes until like 500 or more years. But what we notice is that it's actually maybe only two or three um, months out of the 12 months of the year that it actually grows. Um, that it is actually, there is some measurable growth, even though it remains rooted in good, rich soil the whole time. So we're built up in Christ. We're rooted in Christ and we're involved in this ongoing process of growth. So, so for the, I guess one of the good news things in this is don't be discouraged if you don't notice this on a day in and day out basis. But this is the trajectory of growth that God has for us. Um, Acts 20, verse 32, it says that there is the word of grace that is able to build you up. And so this is something that, again, this is happening to us. It is God's grace working in us that builds us up, that makes us um, more like Christ. Strengthened in the faith. Um, this is talking about when we, are, when we are rooted in Christ and we are being built up and growing, in Christ, this results in a stronger faith. Um, again, this is something that Jane was uh, helping us kind of put words to in the song that she was sing, singing, that our faith proves true even in the craziness of this time that we're in. Um, our faith is what upholds us and strengthens us. And, and as we remain rooted, as we tap into that rich soil of Christ, and as we grow over the years, we become increasingly stable in our faith, regardless of what's going on around us. And then finally, what takes place, and this is the natural part of it, um, we overflow with thankfulness. Uh, praise is what completes this circle in which God has been blessing us. We are rooted in him and we are built up in him and we grow stronger. Then we find that we are overflowing. We are brimming with thankfulness and gratitude and thankfulness is what sloshes out of us as we walk through the day. So this is great, right? I mean, um, this is, the, I think I'm describing what you and I would really like and long for. Um, but as I read that and that kind of got really honest uh, I kind of thought, well, if those are the marks of a healthy Christian, if Paul is this coach and he's describing, hey, this is what a great um, spiritual athlete looks like, I got to ask myself, why don't I see more examples like that in my life? Why 
why does the world that's watching Christians, why don't, why don't we as Christians give the world a better example of that? Are, are we, did we stop growing? I'm, or if my faith is being strengthened, then why? And this is, I'm speaking here, this is first person. This is the cry of my heart. If my faith is being strengthened, then why am I feeling so weak in the face of this difficult season we're in? Rather than overflowing with thankfulness, why am I daily hit with feelings of just misery? Ugh in this COVID world we're imprisoned by. How come thankfulness isn't coming to the surface as readily as maybe what I think Paul is describing here? Well, before I address that, I want to, I think it's really important to keep in mind that the people that Paul wrote to in Colossae, they were a group of people who really, really wanted to be good. He's not writing to people who were struggling and they just didn't care. I mean, these were people that were really earnest and sincere in their faith. And not only did they want to grow, they really wanted their town, their kingdom pod to become Uncommonville, to be this place where God reigned. But they, as the Christians who were supposed to be leading the way, they themselves were kind of having some trouble. They were distracted, uh, even derailed by a notion that what they were given and what they had been doing was insufficient. Something in their head thought, okay, well, yeah, Jesus got me this far. I believe that, he, I'm, that we are saved, but I think there's some extra stuff that we need um, if we're really going to make a difference. And Paul has reminded them more than once in this letter that Jesus was not only enough to save them, but also to sustain them. And so he says again, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. But these young Christians and well-meaning churchgoers kept thinking that what they had or who they were was not enough. Let me say those two words again, not enough. I don't know about you, but the words not enough are like a tape played on a continual loop in my head. I don't know how many of you could maybe relate to that, but it's uh, whether I am not enough or I am not doing enough, that dang message of not enough is so loud and so difficult for me to ignore. I was talking to um, our, uh, on Wednesday, I was talking to the little Right Club journaling group. And um, in fact, I think Max, you and I were talking about this uh, last Monday too, but the narratives that we live by are extremely important. When we base our thoughts and actions on a false narrative, the results are bad or maybe even disastrous. So we need to base our narratives we need to base our life story on narratives that are true. And if I've got this narrative running through my head all the time that, yeah, thank you, Jesus, but I'm still not enough. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I'm not discounting you, but I, I, I'm just not doing enough. That's going to lead to some, some very exhausting results. Prior to addressing the issue facing this church, um, 
the the issue that um, life in Christ was not enough, Paul paints one of the most beautiful pictures of the enoughness of Christ um, in all of the Bible. Colossians 1, 15 to 23, we looked at that just a couple of Sundays ago, is this beautiful, eloquent passage about the beauty of Christ, that Jesus is enough and he is everything and more. And then he goes on to say, Paul says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. In other words, see, see to it that no one hijacks or kidnaps. That's actually what that word means in the original language, takes captive. It's a pretty vivid description. See to it that no one hijacks your thoughts with a hollow love of wisdom based on human traditions and human strengths. Don't get distracted by thinking that you lack something, that, that Jesus gave you some of himself, but not enough. Don't be deceived into thinking that you need more of what something like, like God was holding out on you. Now, when we look at these next few verses, starting in verse 11, Paul emphasizes all that they have been given in Christ. And he's, he's writing these very encouraging words, and some of these are things he's already addressed earlier in the letter. And so rather than like picking apart why the Colossians were buying into this false not enough stuff, um, Paul just kind of comes back to the basics. He says, we're going to continue to rehearse. We're going to continue to practice what is true regarding your position in Christ. We're going to continue to rehearse the fact that you were planted in the rich soil of Christ and you can be built up and strengthened and overflowing with thankfulness. The basics are always worth reinforcing, even if you make it to the professional level, which I don't know that any of us we'll make it quite to that place like where Paul was. So let me read, um, starting in verse 11. If you've got a Bible, I really do encourage you to, to follow along. I'm going to try, this might be too big of a section to copy and paste, but let me see if I can, let me see, yeah. So you can follow along with me on this. Um, Paul says, again, as a reminder, this is who you are in Christ. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision, not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. In other words, he is removing that old way of life from you. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sin, and in the circum uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public uh, spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. 
So here's kind of a summary. Paul highlights that Christ has removed absolutely all of their old false self, and he is not going to bring up their past to use it against them. How awesome is that? Christ removes our old life, our wayward life from us, and he's not going to continue to bring it up to point out um, things that would bring guilt and shame to us. Um, their baptism, if you have been baptized, immersed in God, not just baptized in water, but you have allowed your heart to be immersed in God, Paul is saying that similar to the death and burial of Jesus, um, how that resulted in a newly resurrected life, God raised Jesus to new life. When you are baptized, what he's saying is that God raises you to life anew. What was dead, God breathed life into with you. Your past, no matter what rebellious acts you did, are forgiven. You're not indebted to God in any way. He completely forgave you, and that forgiveness is not something that he will take back if you don't do enough or prove you've deserved it. It's yours. He's given it to you. It's a beautiful picture of grace. No strings attached. Finally, Paul says, yes, there are unseen forces working against you. This is the powers and the principalities that he's talking about there. There are unseen forces working against you, but he says that those enemies have been disarmed by Christ. It's an enemy carrying guns with no ammo. I've taken care of that for you. So again, all this good news, and I ask myself, well, if I've been planted in Christ and I'm growing in Christ and I'm being strengthened in God, then why am I still struggling with sin? If all the stuff that once ruled my life has been cut off and thrown away and distanced from me by Christ, why do I still feel guilty? Why do I still continue to return to that stuff? If I've been baptized and raised to a new life, why am I still relying on the things that I supposedly died to and buried? If I've really been made strong and I died to those old ways and God forgave me, um, why is it that that old way of living is so hard to shake? Well, it goes on in verses 16 to 23, and I'm not going to read through this, but I'm just going to say these are examples of what those well-meaning Christians in Colossians were doing in an attempt to overcome their not-enough way of thinking. They, they were doing good things, very difficult things, and they were like, if we can just do a little bit more, then, then I'm going to experience this good life that God promises. They, they did things, and this is what is talked about in those verses. They chose a very strict diet. They refrained from certain drinks. Um, there were religious festivals and long-standing traditions that they adhered to, um, and they were all good, but they were distracted from the main thing, who is Jesus. They were doing all those things, but they forgot about the centrality of Christ. And Paul says that all those things that you're doing, those are just shadows of Christ. Those are not the real thing, who is Christ. They submitted to external rules. Again, good people who want for nothing less than good in their life and their city. 
And then he sums up their committed performances by writing these two verses. I'm going to put these uh, verses 22 and 23. I'm going to paste these into the chat feature. I read this and I remember when uh, just reading this and this really kind of smacked me pretty hard in the forehead. This was very convicting. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, verse 23, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul is saying you can do all these things, yet you continue to find yourself powerless against temptations and selfish indulge, indulgences. How is it that we can be so earnest? Like we pray, okay, God, I'm serious this time. Really? Things are going to be different now. Yet we continue to fall again and again and again. Well, I want to show you, it's kind of a, an absurd illustration. Um, uh, but uh, I've read that protein aids in muscle growth and development. It's probably something that you've heard before. Um, I've, I've got uh, right here, I've got uh, some protein. I, I go with the, uh, the uh, vegetable protein does better for me than whey protein, milk-based protein. But anyway, so this is protein. I hear that protein aids in muscle growth and development. I scooped a little bit out um, and, and put some in here. If I was gonna do a, a protein shake, this is about the amount that I need. So let's say um, that you see me taking protein powder such as this, and because protein aids in muscle growth and development, my thinking is I want bigger biceps. Guys, are you with me? What, what guy doesn't want tighter sleeves, you know? So let's say you see me taking this protein powder and I place it right, right here. See if I can get this wedged in. And there we go. Now that looks pretty good, doesn't it? I like this. See, um, if you saw me doing this and I said, well, this is protein, it's gonna help my muscles grow. Um, you know that applying protein powder to my arm on the outside, that doesn't strengthen my arm. I'm no better equipped to move heavy items after covering my arm with protein powder or if I were to soak my arm in a protein shake. Paul says in verse 23 that when we do these external things, it's an appearance of good things, but lacks any value in restraining. But see, when I choose to consume protein powder, when I mix this in and I consume it, internalize it, then the protein is in a place where it can be used for building muscle. I know you know this. You know that protein has to be ingested in. Paul says that external rules alone cannot improve our strength in times of battling temptation. That they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So what do we do? Well, Paul's actually in this passage already given the answer. Verses 9 and 10, 
Paul gives us the answer to these problems and, and questions that arise, the ones that are like, well, if I'm doing all this extra stuff, how come there isn't this change? But it's the basics that we must keep coming back to. In verse 10, for in Christ, all, or verse 9, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So it, pay attention to this. The entire essence of God the Father fully resides within Christ. There were people in that day that believed that there's no way Jesus could be fully God because he had human flesh. And this is one of many passages that we read about where God was fully man and fully divine. So the entire essence of God the Father fully resides within Christ, the Father's fullness present in Christ's body when he became a man and walked this earth. Fully man and yet at the same time fully God. And then verse 10, Paul says, oh, and by the way, because of Christ, you have that same fullness. Verse 10, in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. In other words, with Christ in you, in you, you lack nothing. Within you resides all the fullness of God. And that is enough. The changes we long for are not merely externals. This process of being built up and strengthened, this is the work of grace that God does inside us. It's not a bunch of external works we do to make our muscles, spiritual muscles look bigger. It's not about doing things that make our spiritual sleeves fit tighter. We need not do these things for the purpose of gaining God's attention because he already sees us. We don't have to flex our own enoughness <laughs> because the good that you and I do can simply be a response to our fullness in Christ. Let me say that again. We don't have to flex to gain God's attention or to prove our own enoughness. The good that you and I do is a response to the truth that we are full. We are responding to the narrative that says that in Christ, we have everything that we need. God does this work in us and our part is responding and acting out of that fullness. Because we are full, we lack nothing. Because we lack nothing, we are positioned to love and to serve and to give thanks. Psalm 23 begins with this declaration. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. What more could I possibly want or ask for? Or if we were to reach back to Colossians 1.27, Paul previously stated, it is Christ in us, in us, that is our hope of glory. From the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, the first act of disobedience was the result of questioning the enoughness of God. The deceiver, if you're familiar with this, um, it's in 
it's in the third chapter of Genesis. You can go back and read it and refamiliarize yourself with it or maybe read it for the first time. But in summary, what happens is the deceiver engaged Eve in a dialogue, a very sly dialogue, where he implanted a, a false narrative that led to Eve thinking that God must be holding out on her. Well, there must be more. Eve bought into the lie of apparently what I was given was not enough. So I'm going to take this for myself. And the deceiver still uses the same tactics because what worked for Eve, unfortunately, it still works for us. Paul is reminding a church who is a lot like ours, a church with good people who want the best for their city, he is reminding us, we are full. All the fullness of God in Christ dwells within us. Can you hold on to that this week? Can that be the focus of your thoughts? When you think you're empty, when that tape plays in your head like it does mine, that you're not enough, can you remember that all the fullness of God in Christ dwells in you? You see, when we disobey, and we do that, <laughs> we do disobey. Um, when we do, it's because we forgot or we failed to believe that we lack nothing. We disobey because we lost sight of the truth that we are full. What more could we want? And yet still God offers forgiveness when we do that. As we confess to our disobedience, we experience the fullness of forgiveness. I ran across this prayer of confession a couple of weeks ago, and it's one that I have um, kind of committed to praying. I wrote it down in a place where I would see it on a regular basis, and I just copied and pasted it into the chat feature. I'm going to read this for us. And this is going to be kind of our lead-in for communion. So if you have um, those communion elements, some type of juice, uh, bread, uh, we're going to celebrate this. But confession is a part of preparing ourselves for communion. And I, I feel like this prayer of confession, um, pray this along with me, um, either out loud as you're reading it where you are, or just silently um, from the chat feature there. Lord, Sometimes our lives have such little focus. We have so much to do. We possess so much stuff. We're driven by the need for still more, and it easily seems to control us. We are sorry, Lord, for how distracted we've become and for losing our way without even realizing it. Forgive us and help us to know that you are all we need. Amen.